Good day. I'm Martin Webb, and welcome to the Climate Report for Thursday, January 13th, 2022. Broadcasting and podcasting on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. It's been exactly one year since returning to the airwaves after the COVID shutdown and refocusing the show to the Climate Report. We remain grateful to all of the KVMR staff, board, volunteers, underwriters, and supporters for keeping KVMR not just alive, but thriving during such a turbulent time, and for providing this twice-monthly opportunity to spread climate change awareness, news, and solutions. A fun new development is being able to record the Climate Report at home and literally text the show to KVMR, saving drive time, oil use, and pollution, a proper way to broadcast a climate show. Thank you also to the listeners who have shared their heartfelt supportive comments via email, Facebook message, or in person. Radio broadcasting is an isolated endeavor, talking to listeners that aren't in the room, picturing who you are and who you might be. So it's always helpful to know people are indeed out there and listening. And remember, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org. As we start a new calendar year, there is a lot to recap in a climate review of 2021. For decades, the primary news story has been there are essentially two types of people continuing the human-caused climate crisis. Those that don't believe it is real, and those who believe it is real but expect someone else to deal with it. However, as we cover later in the program, both of those numbers are rapidly dwindling with minuscule shrinking numbers for outright deniers and growing numbers of people ready to act, all of which bodes well for the future. Before our 2021 climate recap, here are some brief science-related headlines. First, global warming could lead to an increase in kidney stone disease, a new study finds. Rising temperatures due to the climate crisis will lead to a rise in people suffering from kidney stones, a painful medical condition exacerbated by heat and dehydration, according to a new study. The incidence of the condition has escalated over just the past two decades in line with increased global temperatures, particularly among people of color, women, and adolescents. Diet and lifestyle changes have contributed to the rise in the condition, but prior research has demonstrated that high ambient temperatures also increase the risk. The number of people seeking medical help for kidney stones escalates following very hot days when the risk of dehydration multiplies. Said Gregory Tassain, a pediatric urologist at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a senior author of the study that was published in Scientific Reports, quote, with climate change, we don't often talk about the impact on human health, particularly when it comes to children, but a warming planet will have significant effects on human health, end quote. In the U.S., about one in every 10 people suffers from kidney stones at some point. And the incidence increases across the U.S. from north as you head to the south, where it's hotter. According to researchers, the number of cases will increase regardless of whether greenhouse gas emissions continue at the current rate or are cut to an intermediate level. This will lead to a huge rise in health costs either way. Well, here's a quick tidbit from a writer for The Guardian. This is off of an opinion piece by John Naughton titled Why the Climate-Wrecking Craze for Crypto Art Really Is Beyond Satire. 
And in a quick tidbit here, just to make sure that people understand what NFTs are. For artists, art collectors, and art aficionados, there is a contemporary obsession, he says, the frenzy now surrounding non-fungible tokens, or NFTs. For those who have not yet noticed this obsession, an NFT is basically a traceable code. It's indelibly attached to a digital object, such as an image or recording. Once someone has bought that object, digital, it becomes irrevocably registered to them so that they can be said to be owners of the code and the object. If it sounds abstruse, then that's because it is. And yet, over the last 18 months or so during the COVID lockdowns, NFTs have become a sensation in the art world, or at any rate, in the part of it controlled by the big auction houses. Last June, Sotheby's ran an auction of NFTs with prices ranging between $9,000 and $11 million. In an earlier auction by Christie's, a digital artwork by someone named Mike Winkleman, who calls himself Beeble, sold for $69 million. Up to that point, Mr. Winkleman had never, ever sold an art print in his life for more than 100 bucks. $69 million dollars. Well, you can guess what this has triggered, an avalanche of wannabe beeples, plus a lot of speculative hustlers who see a possibility of modest jackpots for relatively little work, say a recording of your charming cat's purr. Anyone can play at the game, and there are useful DIY guides on the web for those interested in having a go at making NFTs and trying to make money. So what's not to like? Surely it's a good thing that artists who have had a hard time earning a crust in the pandemic can get paid. It is. But there is one small snag. The technology that ensures that the NFT you've bought is yours is a blockchain technology similar to the ones that power cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. And the computations needed to provide the certification of blockchains for NFTs requires massive amounts of electricity, which comes with a correspondingly heavy carbon footprint. A single transaction on the cryptocurrency Ethereum blockchain, for example, currently requires 233 kilowatt hours for one transaction. That's equivalent to the power consumption of an entire U.S. average household over eight days for one transaction. He concluded his piece by saying, Nero merely fiddled while Rome burned. We're enthusiastically bidding for NFTs while heating up the planet. Well, now last science uh, tidbit before our 2021 recap. Scientists are watching what's called the giant doomsday glacier in Antarctica with concern. Cracks and fissures are stoking fears of a breakup that could lead to a sudden two-foot rise in global sea levels or more. Last month, ICE scientists meeting in New Orleans warned that something alarming was brewing on the West Antarctic Ice Sheet. It's a vast plain of ice that's not on the ocean, it's on the Antarctic Peninsula landmass. Years of research by teams of British and American researchers showed that great cracks and fissures have opened up both on top of and underneath the Thwaites Glacier one of the biggest in the world. And it was feared that parts of it too may fracture and collapse, possibly within five years or less. Well, the Thwaites Glacier is roughly about the size of Britain. It contains enough water on its own to raise sea levels worldwide by more than two feet. It has been called the most important glacier in the world, even the Doomsday Glacier. 
and satellite studies show it is melting far faster than it did in the 1990s. Thwaites is worrisome, as there are many other great glaciers in Antarctica also retreating, thinning, and melting as the southern ocean warms around the continent. Many of these great glaciers are being held back because Thwaites acts like a cork, blocking their exit to the sea. Should Thwaites fall apart, scientists believe the others would speed up, leading to the collapse of the whole ice sheet and catastrophic global sea level rises of 10 to 15 feet or more. Now, whether and how quickly they may collapse are some of the most important questions of our age. Sea levels are rising fast and faster. The annual rate of increase in global water elevation more than doubled its pace just from 2006 to 2015. And it's accelerating. Should all West Antarctica's glaciers ever collapse, there is no coastal city in the world that would not over time be swamped at ruinous effect to life and economies. Well, the consensus of glaciologists used to be that it would take centuries of global warming before glaciers the size of Thwaites could shatter and collapse. But so rapid and unexpected has been the loss of sea ice up north in the Arctic. And so sudden was the loss of the Antarctic Larsen B ice shelf 20 years ago that it's now considered possible that the Thwaites will disappear in the next three to five years. It's worth noting that ice loss up north in the Arctic barely affects sea levels. It allows for more warming of the water, but it doesn't necessarily impact sea level because most Arctic ice at the North Pole forms at sea because there is no continent. Antarctic ice, however, is mostly on land, so any melting adds to sea levels. Well, the tipping point for the Larsen B ice shelf came suddenly 20 years ago, and how Thwaites and other glaciers will negatively respond to accelerating global heating is still not known. But these big global physical processes are underway and can be addressed only by global action. Thwaites underlines that global heating and glaciers do not wait for politicians, and every year action to reduce climate emissions is delayed only accelerates global disaster. Well, for our 2021 climate headlines, let's take a moment to recount last year's climate victories, whether in courtrooms, boardrooms, classrooms, or communities that care. These are the climate victories of 2021 that help put fossil fuels in check. From local activism to shareholder rebellions, here's what climate advocates accomplished over the last year. After a year of record-breaking climate disasters and a grim prognosis from the world's top experts who warn the planet has already sustained irreversible harm, a movement is gaining momentum to force change. As the UN Secretary General declared in August, the urgent need to curb carbon emissions marks a death knell for the fossil fuel industry. For decades, Americans were told that standing up to powerful oil and gas companies wasn't possible, but the reality is that every day people are making a difference in the fight to cut emissions. These grassroots victories also show that the people who have been made most vulnerable by fossil fuel extraction, including black and brown communities, already have solutions on hand. Here's a roundup of their accomplishments over the last year. First, there's the money movers. Large institutions with significant financial holdings in fossil fuel extraction corporations divested their assets as the fossil fuel divestment movement swept through Massachusetts. After a nine-year highly contentious organizing battle, students with fossil fuel divest Harvard 
succeeded in pushing Harvard University to divest all of its $42 billion endowment, the largest in the world, from fossil fuel-related companies. Nearby, other universities like Boston University and Wellesley University divested from fossil fuels this year as well. Wellesley's achievement comes after almost a decade of student activism from campus groups. For Boston University, the shift is significant. When the student-run group Divest BU first launched eight years ago, university president Robert Brown argued divestment wasn't feasible. But after a, quote, long journey. Brown acknowledged in September that activists successfully swayed the board of trustees to divest and put the university, as he said, quote, on the right side of history. Meanwhile, in Boston City itself, Boston Mayor Michelle Wu signed an ordinance in late November phasing out the city's investments in fossil fuel as well as tobacco and prison industries. Well, those are the money movers. Those are the people that uh, from the outside in are pulling out their investments. There's also the community battles, local communities organized to push back against extractive companies setting up shop in their neighborhoods. For example, a majority black neighborhood in Memphis, Tennessee, that fought off the construction of the 49-mile by Halia Connection underground pipeline that was slated for approval in mid-2021. Residents had petitioned local, state, and federal officials to reject the permit after representatives for the company had said that construction through the historically black neighborhood of Boxtown represented, quote, the path of least resistance. The company later pulled its permit request for the project, citing low oil production caused by the pandemic. Well, that was in the U.S. South. In the Northeast, the multi-state environmental organization known as the Delaware River Basin Commission formalized a moratorium on new drilling permits in that area, covering 14,000 square miles of the Delaware River Basin spanning multiple states. Meanwhile, closer to home here in California, the Board of Supervisors for Los Angeles County voted unanimously in September to scrap new and existing oil and gas drilling projects. The new rule is slated to impact Inglewood Oil Field, the largest urban oil field in the country, which is surrounded by many majority black neighborhoods. In April of last year, a pipeline in the oil field spilled 1,600 gallons of oil just a few hundred feet from the nearest playground. Said Supervisor Holly Mitchell, who authored the motion, there are tens of thousands of people who live in very close proximity to oil wells, 73% of whom are people of color. So for me, it really is an equity issue. Well, then from within, there were the shareholder rebellions that were tearing down fossil fuel companies' recalcitrants from inside. Activist investors leveraged their collective power to force major oil companies to change from within. For example, when hedge fund activists claimed three out of 12 voting seats on ExxonMobil's board. Climate activists and dissident investors successfully executed what's called a shareholder rebellion within ExxonMobil and also Chevron last spring, protesting the company's continued inaction toward meaningfully curbing carbon emissions. 
An activist head fund, hedge fund called Engine Number no. 1 staged an upset victory in electing three new directors to Exxon's board after disgruntled investors hoped to push the oil giant toward a greener future. Meanwhile, Chevron faced opposition from the Dutch activist campaign group Follow This, which also led another shareholder revolt in voting to force the company, Chevron, to implement tougher emissions targets. The shareholder rebellions for Exxon and Chevron marched a par- mark a paradigm shift for investors and a victory in the fight against climate change. Other victories last year include land repatriation as indigenous groups negotiated the return of traditionally stewarded and stolen lands to halt destruction to the environment. For example, when the Passamaquoddy tribe in eastern Maine reacquired 150 acres of land that was stolen in the late 19th century by immigrant settler colonists. The Passamaquoddy lands were slated for real estate development and timber production, but instead, the Maine chapter of the Nature Conservancy, a global environmental organization based in the U.S., provided the tribal government with the funds to purchase the land instead. That was Maine. Then in Minnesota, the state returned 120 acres of land to the Lower Sioux Indian community. The U.S. had previously broken the Mendota Treaty of 1851 by settling in the land. This led to the Dakota War of 1862. In response, the tribes pushed the federal government to uphold its end of the treaty. And 170 years after the treaty signing, finally acknowledged the wrongdoing and gave some of the land back. Traditionally, indigenous people worldwide tend to be far better stewards of lands they have thousands of years of connection to, as opposed to colonizer societies who tend to have no connection to lands they want to steal for resource extraction. So returning lands wherever possible is expected to help the climate. Then there are the victories in the courtroom. Lastly, after student rebellions, shareholder rebellions, community rebellions, and land repatriations, 2021 saw its fair share of courtroom climate victories as climate activists leveraged the legal system to help enforce a reduction in emissions. In addition to court victories in Australia and Germany regarding federal government duties to protect the future, a Dutch court handed down a landmark decision in May to force Royal Dutch Shell, one of the top 10 polluters in the world, to cut their emissions in half before 2030. Though the court didn't find the company had broken any laws, it said Shell had endangered human lives, violating the country's civil codes. Another 2021 courtroom victory came for the 16 young plaintiffs in a case known as Held versus State of Montana. It's a suit alleging that Montana contributed to the climate crisis and therefore violated their constitutional rights. It is the first case of its kind to make it to trial, which could set a precedent for similar lawsuits that seek to hold the government accountable for climate change. The young people, now ranging in age from 4 to 20, first filed the case in March 2020 and are asking that the state of Montana implement a plan to reduce emissions. Said Grace Gibson Snyder, 18, and one of the youth plaintiffs, quote, at this political stage where our governments, both federally and in Montana, are determined to continue to rely on fossil fuels, we turn to our courts to protect our constitutional rights. We have this opportunity to present the whole story of the government helping cause climate change. To wrap up today's first climate report of 2022, here are more encouraging news pieces with helpful actions people are taking. 
First, a new study shows that 6 in 10 Americans are either alarmed or concerned about climate change. It's a new report that's revealed a record number of Americans are now alarmed about the climate crisis. The study, published by the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, found that Americans overall are becoming increasingly worried about global warming, more engaged with the issue, and more supportive of finding solutions. The study categorized Americans into six distinct groups based on their their beliefs, their attitudes, their policy support, as well as behavior about climate change. The six distinct groups from top to bottom are, first, the alarmed, who are the most engaged and very worried about global warming. Next is the concerned, who think global warming is a significant threat, but prioritize it less, and so therefore are less likely to take action than the alarmed. Then they're followed by the cautious, who are aware of climate change but are uncertain about its causes or are not very worried. Then on the bottom three, we've got the disengaged, who are largely unaware of global warming. Next is the doubtful, who doubt it's happening or doubt it's human-caused. And lastly, at the very bottom is the dismissive, who firmly reject its reality and oppose most climate change policies. Well, the study revealed that the largest group is alarmed, 33%, one-third of Americans, and that greatly outnumbers the bottom category, the dismissive, which is 9%, of a factor of more than 3 to 1. So the top category, the alarmed, were 33% the largest. The smallest category was the dismissive at the bottom at 9%. When you add together the two top segments and compare them to the two bottom segments, approximately 60% of Americans are either alarmed or concerned, while the bottom two of doubtful and dismissive are less than 20%. Again, a ratio of 3 to 1. Over the last five years, the alarmed group has nearly doubled in size. As a matter of fact, from just March 2021 to September 21 alone, a six-month period, the alarmed segment increased by nine percentage points. Meanwhile, the dismissive group at the very bottom shrank in the past five years. Now less than one in ten Americans firmly rejects the reality of human-caused global warming. Now, while the top category shows that one-third of all Americans are alarmed, as early as 2015, just a few years ago, alarmed was the second smallest group. So in 2015, second smallest group, now alarmed, is the largest. The bottom three out of the six continue to shrink in recent years. And the study says the growth of the alarmed segment is encouraging because progress on climate change requires strong, coordinated, and sustained action. And the alarmed are the most likely to demand and support these actions. Again, the ratio is three to one. The most concerned at the top versus the unconcerned at the bottom. Next, here's an interesting article about buy-nothing groups out of The Guardian, entitled A Banana, Concrete, Those Are Good Gifts, The Recycling Group Turning Strangers Into Friends. It says there are 7,000 buy-nothing groups with more than 5 million members worldwide, but their appeal goes beyond the chance to swap everything from nettles to power tools. Who on earth wants fish tank wastewater, chicken poop, trumble tumble dryer lint, or toilet paper roll tubes? No one, you might think, but the buy nothing community begs to differ. These are all real gifts that have been snapped up by the more than 5 million members worldwide who give away their unwanted items in the local community. It's living proof that one person's trash is another's treasure. 
Now, there is nothing unique or original about giving and getting stuff for free. It's a practice as old as humanity. But what's different with Buy Nothing versus organizations and apps like FreeCycle is that it's a hyper-local gift economy focused more on community than things. The project's founders, Rebecca Rockefeller and Liesl Clark, say it's a social experiment and that it's affecting a fundamental shift in our attitude material goods by building a sense of community and treating them as community-owned and shared. Rockefeller says if you come at it from an angle of joy and human connection, you're more likely to inspire lasting change rather than coming at it from telling people you have to do without this. Now, from that first Facebook group, the community has expanded to 7,000 groups all around the world with 5.3 million users in 44 countries as diverse as Guatemala, Iceland, Oman, Vietnam, and Zimbabwe. The greatest concentrations of communities are in Seattle and New York, and while we've been dinging Australian government this whole show, there is a huge dynamic Australian Buy Nothing network among its citizens. The newly launched Buy Nothing app is designed to swerve the structural potential for inequity off of the Facebook group model. In the app, users can choose their own geographical limits, create their own communities, either hyper-local, neighborhood plus, or surrounding areas. Said co-founder Rockefeller, I'm really hoping our app makes this more accessible to more people who've been unable for a variety of reasons to connect with it on other platforms. One member in London says, I really like the opportunity to quietly rage against the machine. Or for our final segment, now that California has implemented mandatory food waste collection, here's what some people are doing in other parts of the world with their food scraps that could be helpful to us. Nevada County, of course, is not new to worm farming. But check out what's happening in the UK as they're sending out free worm farm starts. A Nottingham-based initiative called the Urban Worm Community Interest Company is on a mission to worm up the UK by kick-starting an urban worm farming movement that can create high-grade fertilizer from banana skins and old socks. Now, the social enterprise has received a grant to send out 1,000 packs of composting worms, known as tiger worms because of their red skin, to anybody with a do-it-yourself worm farm ready to house a population of 100. They're sending them to households, schools, and even prisons free of charge. The managing director says using worms to manage organic household waste is happening at scale all over the world. The reality of climate change Natural resource depletion and mass urbanization presents unprecedented threats to global food security and the survival of humanity. As far as natural waste managers and fertilizer producers go, worms are unmatchable. They can eat up to half their body weight in organic waste every day, and they can reduce the volume of that waste by 90% over two to six months. The process particularly lends itself well to the urban environment with small-scale, indoor, low-tech, low-cost systems. And in the UK, 83% of people live in cities, so an urban worm farming movement is essential for future food security and provides easy solutions for kitchen waste. Now, worm castings, or worm manure, that they produce is grade-A soil, rich in the 14 nutrients that plants need to thrive. Just one tablespoon of worm manure per plant is enough for a growing season. And for those who are still squeamish, the director says that she's quick to assure them that worms don't smell. Although the wee that they produce, drained out of the bottom of the worm farm, is so powerful that it needs to be diluted before being used as a fertilizer in the garden. A DIY worm farm can be made in anything that keeps light out. The UWC website has videos showing how to dig deep and transform a plastic box, a chest of drawers, and even a bag for life into a new earthy home. 
Worms don't even need your waste food. Find a box, fill it with some damp shredded paper, some cotton socks, an old wool jumper, and you're off. Said the executive director, worms just want to eat and mate. If you give them enough food and space, they won't try to escape. And the benefits of worm farming are that it tackles climate change. Rotting food waste releases the greenhouse gases methane and nitrous oxide, which respectively are 13 and 310 times stronger than carbon dioxide. Worms are also easy for all. They're low-cost, low-tech, and perfect for the city. You don't need a garden to keep a few worms. They'll be very happy under your kitchen sink. And lastly, worms are sustainable waste management. Worms love organic waste. Solutions for domestic and industrial waste management from food to animal waste that are efficient, ecological, and economical. Well, that's all for today's Climate Report, broadcasting and podcasting here on KVMR-FM and at kvmr.org every second and fourth Thursday at 6.30 p.m. I'm Martin Webb. For daily news headlines in between broadcasts, there is a Climate Report social media page. And I host weekly live broadcasts on personal climate action called The Balance Beam. Past shows are archived under podcasts at the KVMR website. And for comments or questions, feel free to email climatereport at kvmr.org.